Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the essay titled, Only an Honest Fight, No Negotiations, from the head of the Wagner mercenaries, who appears to be calling for Russia to end the war in Ukraine now. But Prigozhin is actually calling on Russia ahead of the Ukrainian counteroffensive to either defeat Ukraine or suffer a temporary Russian defeat that will catalyze the rebirth of Russian nationalism so that the, quote, war monster will rise again and the international community will bow down to Russia. Joining us is Robert Young Pelton, an author, filmmaker, journalist and explorer. He's the publisher of Dangerous Magazine and has had a first-hand perspective on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's most infamous jihadi, rebel and insurgent groups. His books include The World's Most Dangerous Places, Come Back Alive, Three Worlds Gone Mad, License to Kill, Hired Guns and the War on Terror, and his autobiography, The Adventurist. Earlier in the year, he visited the entire front in Ukraine. Then we will examine the leak of secrets from the $100 billion intelligence establishment, which generates mountains of classified information along with the $886 billion defense budget that is actually over a trillion, which has transformed the forever war into an era of eternal war. Joining us is Karen Greenberg, Director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School, an International Studies Fellow at the New American Foundation, a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the Editor-in-Chief of the CNS Sufan Group Morning Brief. She is the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State, and her latest book, Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy, From the War on Terror to Donald Trump. We will discuss her article at Tom Dispatch, Will It Never Stop? from forever war to eternal war. Then finally, we'll explore the erosion of privacy from surveillance capitalism along with the United States government that has been collecting and storing more data since 2000 than the entire previous course of humanity. Joining us is Kerry Howley, a feature writer at New York Magazine and the author of Throne, a New York Times editor's choice and pick of the best of the year lists in Time, Salon, Slate, and many other venues. Her work has appeared in the Paris Review, Granta, Best American Sports Writing, the New York Times Magazine, and Harper's. A Lennon Foundation fellow, her latest book, Just Out, is Bottoms Up and the Devil Laughs, A Journey Through the Deep State. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Robert Young Pelton, an author, filmmaker, journalist and explorer. He's a publisher of Dangerous Magazine and has had a first-hand perspective on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's most infamous jihadi rebel insurgent groups. His books include The World's Most Dangerous Places, Come Back Alive, Three Worlds Gone Mad, License to Kill, Hired Guns and the War on Terror, and his autobiography, The Adventurist. And early this year, he spent time across the entire front in Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Young Pelton. Hi, Ian. It's always a pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, Robert, there's just two stories I needed to touch base with you on. One, uh, that there's this letter, I guess, from Prigozhin, the founder of the the Wagner mercenary group. He's gone public. I'll just read what he's, uh, just some of what he's said, which is pretty interesting. Quote, For the authorities and the society as a whole, it is necessary today to put a decisive end to the special military operation. 
The ideal scenario is to announce the end of the special military operation to inform everyone that Russia has achieved the results that it planned, and in a sense we have actually achieved them. We have ground down a huge number of fighters of the armed forces of Ukraine, and we can report that the task of the special military operation have been completed. So, and the other story, of course, I want to talk about is how much used junk weapons and equipment the U.S. is sending to Ukraine, which nobody in the press seems to be following. But let's start with Prigozhin. How significant it is that, that he's, and we know he's been at war with the Ministry of Defense, and he has the nationalists who have traction in the in the Russian state media in his camp. But why is he saying now that Russia should sort of essentially declare victory and end the war? Well, you know, he's run out of juice. Uh, Prigozhin was famous for being uh, the supplier to the Russian military, of, you know, food and cleaning services as Concord. And he was allowed to go play in Russia with various uh, uh, groups. And when Wagner sort of returned to Donbass, he brought with him an old European city-state idea of basically just taking prisoners and untrained people and throwing them at the Ukrainian army. And that worked. I mean, it, you know, he made advances where the Russian army had basically fled. So he was essentially responding to the fact that Wagner is an illegal entity inside Russia. And yet within Donbass, he had the uh, political and military clout. But the last thing that Vladimir Putin would want would be a, an armed militia of hardened killers led by a civilian a former hot dog vendor that didn't agree with Putin's decision. So I think he's being wound down by shortening his supply lines and cutting off his uh, you know, supply of men and material. And of course, when he went after Petrushev, who's a powerful figure there, even more right-wing and nationalistic than Putin is, my understanding is that Putin uh, was talked into this by people like Prigozhin and others and maybe regrets the decision of getting into this war. Have you heard anything along those lines? No, I, I think uh, you know what we call Wagner was always a useful tool for exerting pressure or influence for Putin, and they were deniable and they were disposable and they could be thrown away. Uh, when he got into trouble in Ukraine, you know, it's a fairly big decision to bring in an identified it's not really a mercenary force, but militia to then fight mm -hmm. on a state's behalf. And so they would both deny the existence of Wagner in Donbass and at the same time supply them with uh, weapons and materiel. So Putin got himself into a trap where he had to legitimize a rogue militia. And now that you know, you're hearing these sort of squawkings from the front lines from Prigozhin, that is angering uh, Shogoy and all the military people because they're saying, wait, we supply this guy with ammunition and he's, you know, he's bad talking us. So at the end of the day, he has to go away. Right. So he's going to fall from a seventh floor window, right? Well, I say third, you say seventh. We'll split the difference. Okay. All right. Well, whatever does the, the job. So the one thing that he did say, though, Pagosian, was that if earlier Ukraine was part of former Russia, now it is an absolutely national-oriented state. So he's admitting the, the reality that Putin claimed that they were the same people, and now the Ukrainians absolutely hate the Russians. So that's hardly an achievement. Yeah, and, and don't forget, he's just stating the obvious. And, and he has been, uh, Prizhogin has, has been honest in most of his statements. You know, he gets in front of a camera, he doesn't have to go through the media, and he says what he's upset about and what he likes. And he is absolutely trying to be a warlord in Donbass, and he's trying to use that for political or financial purposes at some point. Uh, the question is, with the military so weak, and keep in mind, he, he's inside the military. You know, he's, he's mm -hmm. inside every military base. He knows what's going on. He knows when Putin can push back and when he can't. So what Putin is doing is creating another PMC. You know, they're not mercenaries because they're Russians fighting for Russia inside uh, Crimea called Convoy. And this is actually a guy named Pikalov who was the, the originator of Wagner before Prigozhin showed up. Along with uh, Colonel Utkin, whose, whose call sign was Wagner. He's a Nazi admirer. He has SS tattoos. Uh, and of course... He's named after Hitler's favorite composer, Richard Wagner. And, and this is just a convenient source of 
troops and, and an impact on Ukraine, but he's trying to replace Wagner and Prigozhin because they're too big. And it is always a GRU-focused entity anyway. So if the GRU decides to cut Prigozhin off at the knees, you know, he'll vanish. But it means that Putin has embraced the idea of using PMCs in warfare. So the other issue that I wanted to talk to you about is reports that I've heard from high-level people inside the Ukrainian military and intelligence. Some of the equipment... Well, at least, you know, not all of it, but some of it coming from the U.S. is junk. It's defective stuff that, that's that uh, been, you know, like they just sent a bunch of sniper rifles without scopes, Humvees that don't work, howitzers that leak oil and smoke, and so on. So have you heard reports to that effect? Well, don't forget, I've been in the repair shops where they're trying to fix these things. The The Ukrainians are both grateful and a little frustrated because... You can imagine if you get an artillery piece that's been fired in Gulf War One or Gulf War Two, and it's basically worn out when it shows up, it's not their ideal choice, but it's better than nothing. And and the Ukrainians praise American equipment. And we, we have an entire industry of taking old, worn-out uh, equipment from our previous wars and charging people like Taiwan to refurbish it. We're doing the same thing. We're sort of doing a land lease without actually refurbishing the equipment because we assume the Ukrainians will provide that service. But they're very hard on equipment. If you can imagine how many times they fire tank barrels and artilleries and HIMARS and things like that. So I I guess it's a a compromise. How serious of a problem do you think it is? Because, I mean, my understanding is from these leaks that just happened from this 21-year-old, the real concern is that they're going to need anti-aircraft cover for their offensive. And if they've used too many ground air missiles and if they can't get these MiG-29s that the Poles and have offered up with you know, upgrading them with the proper avionics and weapon systems, then Russia, you know, what's kept Russia out of this war? And, and by the way, the drones that the Ukrainians have are getting shot down because they can't roam across different frequencies. So... How serious is it? That this- so I, 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 I look at it this way. The, the biggest mistake the Russians made is that they don't have command and control. They're, they're moving a very large army, a very large air force, and they, sh- they clearly showed that they don't know how to communicate amongst their units, and they had a disaster. The Ukrainians fight in more of a modular fashion. So if you're with a group of 20 people and you give them a tank, they will use that to some effect. If you give them a drone, they will use that to effect. So I think what America has done or what the military has done is said, look, it would take two years to set up a factory and refurbish all these things. Let's just go in the storehouse and just send you, you know, whatever we have. And I think Ukraine has agreed to that. Now, whether we're, you know, charging them too much money or whether contractors are sort of making money on the difference. I don't know. That That's the job of the media. But I can tell you that on the front lines, in the trenches, I was giving people shovels and they were happy. So I think anything above a shovel is going to make the Ukrainian military happier. But do you think Prigozhin is going public now because they're worried about the new offensive? He's more or less saying along with saying that Russia's already accomplished its goals, he goes on to say, but we must keep fighting, even if it means a humiliating defeat, so that the country can ultimately rise again as a war monster that the international community will bow down to. Yeah, and you, and you make a very good point there. So there's always been this fantasy since the, the late 40s that Russia is this huge monster that can take over the world. We know it's not. We know that it doesn't work very well, and its equipment doesn't work very well. What he's trying to say is, I got Donbass covered. I'm worried about Crimea. In other words, when you talk about the spring offensive, I don't think it's going to be a huge World War I trench kind of lineup along a long distance. It's going to be a very sharp, quick strike into Crimea or into a region that they want to have control of, and then they'll backfill that. So he knows that's coming, and he knows that the Russians can't withstand that. So if you puncture their front lines, they're, they're done. So on, I'm just saying that he's, he knows that they're going to lose the war. So he's trying to get more equipment and more people. But will the Ukrainians still be able to deny the Russian Air Force the ability to fight on its territory? 
Well, that's a good question because the, you have not seen a huge usage of Russian Air Force so far because it's so easy to shoot them down with the very minor equipment we've given the Ukrainians. So I think that's the answer. Secondly, can the Ukrainians consolidate their gains once they pierce the, the front lines and go behind them and encircle them? I say yes, because I've seen that where they flow into a town within days to reset up uh, you know, Ukrainian systems, get rid of Russian money, you know, close down anything the Russians brought in. So I, I'm very positive about the Ukrainians' ability to regain territory. I don't know where they will. But at the same time, I don't see the war ending anytime soon. Well, just in closing, one of the things that Fregosin more or less said, that there's going to be a civil war in Russia. And he, of course, is on the side of the nationalists. So is there any indication that there's going to be retribution for the failures? And humiliation. I think he's a student of history. I think Russia has collapsed every time they've exerted their military force, whether it was World War One, whether it was the Soviet Union in the 80s. Uh, and this has led to an internal collapse because they don't have the ability to maintain an internal and external structure. So I think he's absolutely right. Now, who takes over that gap? Yes, probably nationalists, you know, the, the very same people he's dragging out of the prisons and handing weapons to. So he's, he's sending a shot across Putin's bow. Well, Robert Young Pelton, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, always, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Young Pelton, an author, filmmaker, journalist, and explorer. He's the publisher of Dangerous Magazine and has had a first-hand perspective on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's most infamous jihadi, rebel, and insurgent groups. His books include The World's Most Dangerous Places, Come Back Alive, Three Worlds Gone Mad, License to Kill, Hired Guns, and the War on Terror, and his autobiography, The Adventurist. And early in the year, he spent time across the entire front in Ukraine. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the leaks of secrets from the $100 billion intelligence establishment, which generates mountains of classified information, along with the $886 billion defense budget that's actually over a trillion, which has transformed the forever war into an era of eternal war. I'm fixing Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Karen Greenberg, Director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School and an International Studies Fellow at the New American Foundation and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as Editor-in-Chief of the CNS SUFAN Group Morning Brief and the Aeon Cyber Brief. She is the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, and Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. And her latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. And she has an article of Tom Dispatch, Will It Never Stop from Forever War to Eternal War? Welcome to Background Briefing, Karen Greenberg. It's very nice to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And I obviously want to talk to you about how the forever war that President Biden announced in April of 2021 uh, that he was, would end the forever war. You're arguing, of course, that it's morphed into a eternal war. But just to touch on the the story of the moment with the 21-year-old white supremacist, anti-Semite, young, military-obsessed, right-wing kid from uh, uh, the intelligence wing of the Massachusetts Air National Guard, he's a part of the over $100 billion intelligence budget that generates massive amounts of material and it gets sifted through. And here you have a, a 21-year-old, apparently with top-secret clearances, squirreling this stuff away and sharing it with a bunch of teenagers on a social media chat room, which included a, some Russians and Ukrainians. And now, of course, everybody's wringing their hands about what a terrible thing <laughs> except for... Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Tucker Carlson, who are trying to turn this kid into a hero. But nobody's talking about this massive, over $100 billion intelligence budget 
and why so much of this stuff is classified. I mean, from what I can tell, a lot of the material is of great public interest, and why shouldn't the public know? What harm would it do to know how corrupt the Russian military is, for example? Yeah, I think you're raising a really good point. I think I think we've seen um, an escalation of what is classified since 9/11. Under George Bush, George Bush, um, a made George W. Bush, an extraordinary amount of materials were classified. Many of which might not have been classified in the past. It was an exponential increase in the number of documents that were uh, kept secret. Um, Obama. Um, saw this as a, a problem to be uh, at least restrained, an issue to be restrained, and went out of his way to issue orders saying that he was going to um, take care of this much excessive classification. But, you know, it's one thing before you're president and another thing when you're president to decide to, to, to not be as secretive as a government. And it became such a um, it became such a tool and such a useful tool, and 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 it was so pertinent to the war on terror that um, that I you know that it just seemed to to last. And so Obama did not really reverse any of the classification um, breadth the way we knew it. But then this new director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, went out of her way to make a statement early on in her directorship about. Um, about wanting to not just you know address secrecy, but in particular the number of classified documents, and um, we don't really know where that's gone. We haven't seen much. Um, the depart the uh, DNI director of national intelligence has issued a number of reports on a number of things, but most of them are required by Congress, and and there hasn't really been any kind of breakthrough in terms of a change of. Um, trajectory. So it's been a problem with us for a long time. I just want to mention that in my book, Subtle Tools, that you mentioned at the end, which is, I guess, out in paperback, just out in paperback, one of the subtle tools is secrecy. And I see it as an incredibly crippling um, mechanism by which government, our government, is able to do things in our name that we, we should know about as citizens and that we don't know about. So I, I think this addresses a number of important issues. Right, but along with the, the problem of keeping important information from the public, the regime itself is not working, clearly, when you see how this kid got this clearance and was clearly completely ill-equipped to deal no, with that, it, It's secrecy. completely... It's, it's, Absolutely. And and that goes to another point, which is the number of people um, who are given clearances of um, top secret and beyond uh, um, and secret. And that's something else that really has to be thought about and cleared out. I've, it, it's very hard in terms of time to get a clearance. You would think that if you're getting a clearance, particularly for a 21 year old, it would it, they would they would be able to do this in a way that would prevent against such leakage, particularly because this leakage doesn't seem, as far as anybody's reporting now, unless you've heard otherwise, to be linked to um, to uh, a purpose that was in mind other than, than perhaps to show that he could do it. There didn't seem to be an ideological component to this, right? And so it's a, it's a different um, ilk than what we usually read about when we read about leakages, at least in terms of what we know so far. Sure, he wasn't acting on behalf of a foreign government, but his ideology is far right wing, uh, you know, anti-government, white right. supremacist, anti-Semitic. I mean, you'd think that in in the clearance process they would have noticed, looked at his social media to know that this guy, you know, was, you know, a white supremacist, and, and unless the well, Pentagon as thinks. You know, it's, I as Go you ahead. well know, there are there are a number of people in the military, as many articles are written about lately, um, as well as in law enforcement, which is not this case, but in the military or in other sort of you know military type groups that are right wing um, white supremacists, um, and that's one of the issues that we have to deal with as a country. So let's talk about your article at Tom Dispatch, uh, Karen Greenberg. Will it never stop from forever war to eternal war? I mentioned Biden's announcement in April of 2021 to end the forever war, and your article suggests that it's morphed into an eternal war. 
the defence budget, of course, goes up every year, even though we uh, outspend, I think, the top seven other countries in the world. So at this point, we're talking about a defence budget of for 2024 of $886 billion, which is $69 billion more than last year's, uh, getting close to the first $1 trillion budget. Of course, the truth of the matter is we've already passed the trillion-dollar budget because one of the clever things the Pentagon's done to make the defence budget look as not as huge as it is is to slough off nuclear weapons to the Department of Energy, the Coast Guard, Department of Transportation, veterans to the VA, pensions, etc. So if you really did a proper accounting of the defence budget, it's been over a trillion dollars for some time. But it's the one thing that that lawmakers on a bipartisan basis agree with. So what's that mechanism? Why do we have a kind of zombie defense budget? Yeah, and I'm so glad you pointed that out about um, the fact that DHS, a number of those agencies you mentioned are within the Department of Homeland Security, became a place you know that is allied to uh, the defense budget, not to mention what you mentioned before, which is the intelligence budget. And you put it all together in our national security budget, which is you know on alert for and can be active in what I would call war is um, or the, the the potential of war um, is massive. And 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 you're right, beyond a trillion dollars. So is your question, you know, what do we make of this? What we make of this is, it, at least for me, is that, and this was kind of the argument of my piece, is that, yeah, Biden wanted to end the forever war, which we understood to be the war on terror. And the way the war on terror was fought was in such a way that it was it enabled the president, as opposed to Congress, to authorize just about any strike anywhere he wanted, provided he could say it was in the name of terrorism, not necessarily in the name of the enemies that brought us 9-11, al-Qaeda, um, the Taliban, but, but, but enemies that, that it kind of were associated with those. That's what came up during the Obama administration, associated forces, which doesn't really mean anything. And it was an authorization that had no geographical limits, no temporal limits, um, and no mention of what the end of hostilities would constitute. So it was sort of a blank check, um, and as as its critics said at the time, um, and and that what we're seeing now is that we we as a country have gotten so used to being um, engaged in war as an acceptable and sort of integral part of who we are as a country, in the name of national security, that um, that instead of ending the forever war, we've found places all over the world which we can now say. Um, we may be at, at someday at war. And so we have simmering conflicts everywhere, which the United States has decided is, um, could, and, and in many cases does, involve them um, militarily uh, or intelligence-wise. And this, I, I think, is something that's just happened without our reckoning it, uh, or having a discussion with it as a country. And now we just accept that war is an integral part of who we are as a nation, um, whether you're talking about congressional authorizations, whether you're talking about, and by the way, the authorization for the war that Biden ended um, is still there. It's still in place. And they voted again not to repeal it recently. So I, I believe we're in eternal war and it's not an eternal war against terror. It's an eternal state of war warfare in which um, we considered our right and in our interest to consider uh, engaging in hostilities all over the world. And, and that's what's happening now. And the fact that we don't have a draft, that American citizens are involved in a direct way in the military and in the possibility of wars or in the, in the deployments in wars, makes it easier if, if you have a kind of mercenary army. You know, the public doesn't necessarily have, a skin in, have any skin in the game. And that has made it easier for you know the reckless well, uh, war in Iraq and others surely well don't for, so there's there's a couple of things there one is don't forget i know you don't but the the massive um uh money that has gone to private 
corporations, both in the weapons industry and in the in all of the related to weapons uh, agencies departments. Um, and so you've seen a privatization, and therefore it's a money making venture in a number of ways, whether it's um, private groups, whether it's elsewhere, whether it's weapons manufacture, and, and the other part of that, not having a draft, is war has really changed tremendously. So when we're talking about artificial intelligence, we're talking about um, drone warfare, we're talking about uh, AI, which I just mentioned, we're talking about all of these technological innovations. Um, and we're now really in a state of what war means is very different than conventional troops on the ground. And that, too, changes the need for uh, a draft um, and, and, and has shifted and made the possibility of eternal warfare for all the more um, uh, available. And, you no, know, we don't need a draft for this. But I find not just the notion of eternal war alarming, but the notion of inevitable war, even more alarming, when you look at General Mike Minahan, the Air Force four-star, who recently said that we would soon be at war with China, quoting him, I hope I'm wrong. My gut tells me we'll be in the fight in 2025. So, I mean, that's a casual statement, but just visualize what a war with China would be. I mean, it's, there's no way in the world no, I, that's not, not going to get out of hand. I, I like this inevitable war um, uh, picture that you've drawn because I think that's exactly what it is. It's the idea of where you sit is what you see. And the fact that he said that, even though others around him tried to pull back on his statement, I thought was extremely revelatory. Um, I think one thing that's been interesting is um, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who early on months ago seemed to be making uh, statements here and there at different um, events that were reported in the news about the intense need to stop this conflict as soon as possible in Ukraine and between Ukraine and Russia and to get to the negotiating table with the idea behind this that the United States has been used since the Second World War to living in a world where the idea of a Third World War was just had to be off the table. And all of these different wars and different uh, potential alliances between great powers and others around the world just seem to be inching towards the possibility of a bigger war. And I think those who, like Millie, who are just, or at least were pushing diplomacy, um, um, you know, I wish they were being listened to more. One of the things I find completely um, dispiriting in all of this is the notion that that you see everywhere. You see it in the New York Times. There was a recent article on Foreign Affairs about it. And it's, it, it's, it's now kind of everywhere in, in the ecosystem, which is that in order to get to peace, we have to have a, more of a war, right? And I just find that the, the most convenient um, tool. But really, it, we, we need to have more deaths. We need to have more destruction, um, more insecurity in order to get to um, peace and security. And I just I think that's a very pernicious idea. And I think it's very powerful right now. Well, it's pretty much the, uh, the underlying policy for the war in Ukraine, that yeah. the war has to has to conclude with a Russian defeat because there's no way that Putin's going to give up. But now we're hearing from Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner military group. He's saying we should declare the war over now. Well, you know, um, it's going to be really interesting to see where this call for peace comes from, right? And I, and I, I think, it, you know, every sign of hope, you can sort of hope for what that will mean. I think the predictions of what the peace would look like are um, not useful at this point in time. I think that's what a negotiating table is supposed to be about. We don't know exactly what this peace will look like. We need to get folks to the uh, negotiating table. And I think I there was a quote, um, you know, in my in my piece um, by Zelensky, which is basically like there's nothing to negotiate about. There's no one to negotiate with. That's not true. Um, the, you know, and, um, and I think that it, more voices need to come out and say, this is important. Um, the world is not, um, divisible the way it used to be. We live in a, in a global interconnected, uh, universe and many things depend 
on what can happen if this war escalates or even continues as it does now um, that have to do with things from, you know, supply chains <laughs> to other uh, economic issues to just the instability of the world generally. And I, I think um, there are too many interests at stake. And the sooner they get to the negotiating table, the better. Sure. And at this moment, it's give war a chance, right? Exactly. Give war a chance. That seems to be the the mantra. Well, I thank you for joining us, Karen Greenberg. Thank you so much for having this discussion. I appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Karen Greenberg, who's the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School and an international studies fellow with the New America Foundation and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the editor-in-chief of the CNS Sufan Group Morning Brief and the Aon, the Aon Cyber Brief. She is the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, and Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. And her latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump, now out in paperback. And she has an article at Tom Dispatch, Will It Never Stop? From Forever War to Eternal War. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back exploring the erosion of privacy from surveillance capitalism, along with the U.S. government that has been collecting and storing more data since 2000 than the entire previous course of humanity. As some worn victory, some downfall, private reasons, great or small, can be seen in the eyes of those that call to make all that should be killed to crawl, while others say don't hate nothing at all except hatred. Disillusion words like bullets bark as human gods aim for their mark Make everything from toy guns that spark to flesh-colored Christs that glow in the dark It's easy to see without looking too far that not much is really sacred Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Kerry Howley, who is a feature writer at New York Magazine and the author of Throne, a New York Times editor's choice and the pick of the best of the year list in Time, Salon, Salate and many other venues. Her work has appeared in the Paris Review, Granta, Best American Sports Writing, the New York Times Magazine and Harper's, a Lennon Foundation Fellow. Her latest book just out is Bottoms Up and the Devil Laughs, A Journey Through the Deep State. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kerry Howley. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, the young leaker that was just arrested who put all this stuff in a chat room amongst the feeding a, a bunch of teenagers American secrets. He uh, is being defended by uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Tucker Carlson, in a sense, as a victim of the deep state. And I've always been fascinated of how this notion of the deep state has metastasized in, into sort of a bedrock mm. belief in America's far right. But when Unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever way you want to look at it, there is no such thing as a deep state. If there were a deep state, there wouldn't have been 9-11 and there wouldn't have been January the 6th. So why do you think it has such traction? Well, I don't know if there isn't a deep state. I mean, uh, there is a large, unaccountable bureaucracy that uh, was built up largely after 9-11 using just unimaginable amounts of money. It's very geographically dispersed. It involves, um, you know, at least 100,000 Americans working in intelligence who go home at night and, and can't talk about what they do. And it's not to say that any of this involves, you know, the, um, the illusions and fantasies of, say, QAnon, but it makes sense that people have then gone on to project those fantasies onto this large unknown. Well, as your book points out, there more data has been created and stored since the year 2000 uh, than the entire previous course of humanity. And a lot of it, of course, is stored in this NSA six-block building uh, in the middle of the Utah desert. And one of the reasons why this 21-year-old was given such top-secret clearances working at a if it was based in uh, Massachusetts, was that there's just so much stuff being generated that they process packets of this stuff all around the place. And again, it's a part of this 
a billion dollar plus intelligence machine that just feeds so much information and so much is classified. I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of what this kid released, as far as we know, is actually useful information. So is, is anybody talking about why we classify so much as opposed to howling with indignation about all these uh, compromised secrets? Right, precisely. I mean, there's so much focus on the leakers themselves, but you know, why did this 21-year-old have access to these very current documents? I mean, I think it's hard to say how much this information matters um, because, you you know, you can't glean anything from the response of the security state, which, of course, is always going to say that this was harmful to, you know, their methods. But at the end of the day, this is a 21-year-old Air Force National Guard, essentially IT journeyman. Why does he have top-secret clearance and who else has it? And as you said, you know, so much is now classified that I think the system is quite fragile, right? There, it, people aren't distinguishing between what is actually dangerous, you know, state secrets and what is some security guy asking his wife out for lunch, right? Like, and, and this is not a partisan point. I mean, everybody who studies this issue will tell you that there is a massive overclassification issue, that it's a matter of just kind of classifying everything as default. And so it's silly when people treat people, you know, in the media currently will treat the word classified with a kind of mystery and reverence. But you're not really conveying any information if you think that something is classified. You're really just saying this is government business. So in terms of one of the main characters in your book, Bottoms Up and the Devil Laughs, A Journey Through the Deep State, Kerry Howley, you focus a lot on Reality Winner, and of course we know that she mailed the documents that she was concerned about. I guess she was initially concerned about some of the reporters at The Intercept who were suggesting that there was no Russian involvement in the 2016 election, which is something that persists largely on the right, but some on the left, I guess like Glenn Greenwald, who's now a fixture on Fox News, were pushing that line, and she felt she had to send some information to them that NSA intercepted of Russian attempts to hack into voting machines in the 2016 elections, but they kind of bungled it. And I noticed the similar forensics were, were done on the case of this most recent leaker as well. Yeah, what we, I think we can say about Reality Winner is that she saw this issue being debated in the public, um, has you know, related to Russian mischief in the 2016 election and said, okay, this document can help us adjudicate this particular argument and released it. In terms of what this other leaker was doing, it doesn't, from what we know now, there doesn't seem to have been much of a public interest motivation, you know, but at this point, it's hard to say. Well, I, I don't think there's any similarities. He's a far right wing yeah anti-government. That's that's why uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Tucker Carlson are coming to his defense. There's a video of him at a shooting range spouting white supremacist diatribe and anti-Semitic hate speech before shooting the target. But the mm -hmm. profile of uh, reality winner is quite the opposite, right? She's an eccentric and fitness-loving yogi who lived in a ramshackle rental house in a rough part of town, ate healthy food, took in stray animals, and owned a pink AR-15. <laughs> I mean, I think something that we can say unifies reality and other whistleblowers is, recent whistleblowers, is their youth. So here I'm thinking of Daniel Hale, I'm thinking of Snowden, I'm thinking of Chelsea Manning, um, all of whom blew the whistle, you know, before they turned 31. And I think that has something to do with a kind of moral certainty one, one, one might feel at that age, and also with the relationship you might have to media, right? There was a time when you wouldn't feel such an intimate relationship with like a media figure as some of they might have felt with somebody at the intercept, right? And so I, there's just a kind of immediacy to data for people of that generation that there wouldn't have been for an older generation. Now, I don't think that this 
other gentleman had a public interest motivation, but he did have that kind of immediacy. He had access to these documents. He seems to have posted them for some other motivation. It was there, you know, it was there for him. And that's really the question is, why was it there for him, right? Why did he have access to these documents about like current state secrets? But I mean, the CIA has in the entrance, the quote from the gospel says, John, uh, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's this whole idea in the in the intelligence community that the objective truth is what you're searching for. But what you point out in your new book, which you call a polemic against memory, is that the surveillance mm-hmm. state is not so much a record of objective reality uh, with all of these massive amounts of stuff stored more than the entire course of human history several times over. But it's an effort to shape and manipulate the record. So that is certainly what happened in the case of Reality Winner, right? I mean, the way they distorted. She said something about burning down the White House. And with John Walker Lynn, the idea that he was some high-level Al-Qaeda operative when he was just, you know, a, a sad kid looking for kind of on a religious journey. So yeah. this is the heart of your story, is it not? That the whole yeah. kind of ethos of the, of the intelligence community is actually being turned on its head. It's not about objective reality. It's subjective interpretation and manipulation. I think the book, this, this is well put. The book is born of this anxiety I think a lot of us are feeling but not articulating that everything we are doing is leaving a kind of receipt, is leaving a record. There are pieces of me stored in Gmail and Facebook messages and over text, um, which I've kind of lost agency over in some sense because they're alienable from me. And it is possible that someone else could use them and assemble a version of myself that doesn't reflect me. And we saw that happen in the case of Reality Winner. Reality had pieces of herself all over the cloud, right? All over the internet. She had texted her sister something like, you know, I only say I want to burn down the White House three times a day. And she'd said that this jokingly in this kind of sisterly register of um, millennial hyperbole. And then that very text, I only say I want to burn down the White House three times a day is then used against her in a court of law to portray a woman who is uh, essentially a terrorist, who is, you know, someone who wants to collude with the enemies of America, whoever they might be, to literally burn down the White House. I mean, it's, it's completely absurd, but it's the story that the prosecution told using pieces of reality winners own correspondence and that a judge was ultimately sympathetic to. So what do you think is going to happen in the case of the 21-year-old? Will that follow a similar case? I mean, even the president, Biden, in Ireland tried to sort of tone down the hysteria from the intelligence community about what a massive threat to uh, U.S. national security uh, these leaks were. You know, he said they weren't a big deal, essentially, and they weren't contemporaneous. But nevertheless, I'm sure there will be a repeat of what happened to Reality Winner in terms of the of a really massive sentence under the Espionage Act. And this kid, of course, is being charged under the Espionage Act. Yeah, I mean, Espionage, Espionage Act charges are essentially impossible to defend yourself against. Um, the government basically declares any discovery to be threatening to the national security state itself. And, you know, everything you might use to defend yourself is ultimately classified. This, again, isn't relevant to him, but in the case of, say, Reality Winner, um, you really can't defend against Espionage Act charges by pointing to a public interest motivation. It's not relevant in terms of the statute. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen here, but if he is you know, charged, then he will almost certainly be found guilty. There's no way out of it. So, Carrie Halley, the title of your book, Bottoms Up, and the Devil Laughs comes from a 2014 viral video of a Christian woman at conference. She presents a very polished and assured case that monster energy drinks are a vehicle for Satan. And that sort of segues into this world of conspiracy and delusion. 
uh, which has gripped a lot of the Republican Party. Certainly it has a major vehicle in the, the leader of the, the GOP, Donald Trump, who's running for president. And of course, one of the most high profile congresswoman in the new Republican-controlled House is Marjorie Taylor Greene. In 2017, she said, there's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take this global cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles out, and I think we have the president to do it, obviously referring to Donald Trump. So how did, tell me about how did these thoughts migrate from some Christian woman hawking energy drinks into this sort of bedrock (laughs) belief amongst we don't know what the percentage of the Republican Party, but it's at least 30 to 40 percent support Trump in varying degrees, I imagine. They, you know, entertain these kind of beliefs. Yeah, it's an attempt to give us a moment before enacting a really naive idea about what's true and what's false, to go back to your idea of building different narratives and this idea that, you know, maybe there is a deep state. It's just not the deep state that Marjorie Taylor Greene is telling us about. Um, You know, that that speech was about how you can read signs of the devil on the can of the you know typical monster energy drink. Uh, You know, it says 666 here. There's an upside down cross, et cetera. This must be a tool of the devil. And what I'm saying is, well, okay, before we dismiss her, let's take a moment. Satan is a shapeshifter. He's not always going to come in the uh, corporeal form we expect. Uh, Monster Energy Drink has some very serious ethical allegations against it in terms of its uh, corporate behavior towards women. It's been a really aggressive protector of its own trademark. There's, you know, there's a really sweet company called Monster Fish Keepers that made no money. That was just a guy with an online forum that where people could come and share thoughts about large fish and monster went after them. Right. So like literally the most aggressive company when it comes to protecting monster, the word monster, the letter M, et cetera. And so it's about, let's, let's spend some time with these stories and figure out what, like the mystery inside of them, the kernel inside of them, that brings them alive rather than say, no, this is true, this is false, which I don't think leads us anywhere new or interesting. But it's the alienation that I find so interesting, and I wonder Mm. where that comes from, because you have alienation on the left and the right. People just don't feel connected to this government to the point where they hate it enough to want to blow up buildings and attack the Capitol. Yeah, I mean, I do think that there is a sense that so much happens that we aren't privy to. Well, that's true, that's right? True. <laughs> that's, right, yeah. That's what your book points out. You know, yeah. The NSA is <laughs> filling up a warehouse and six blocks big in Utah with God knows what. And, and Snowden showed us so much of what was going on illegally and legally, you know, beneath our notice. And then, you know, Q of QAnon is what? Is a, is a whistleblower, is an insider. Um, and so I think there's like, there's a hunger for more of that. And since, you know, we don't have, well, not necessarily, they're not exclusive of one another, but people are building stories around this absence. Mm-hmm. This most recent iteration, this leaker, it's only going to fuel that. Like there will be stories born from these documents, conspiracies, et cetera. Well, what's interesting is that there's both a rejection of the deep state and at the same time a fascination with it. Yes. Because, for example, and I think that's fed in part by Hollywood. I mean, all these spy movies and CIA movies, they're just so absurd. I mean, the the reality of the intelligence world is a bunch of boring bureaucrats, not that's right. Jason Bournes. But, you know, well, they... I, I, that's actually a big part of the story. I mean, if you look at Daniel Hale, if you look at Reality Winner, probably this latest leaker, a lot of the, these intelligence jobs are make work, right? So they're, they feel meaningless because they are meaningless because it's just like redundant administrative work a lot of the time. So it's more boring than you could possibly imagine. Well, just in closing, what is it that you, you want the audience to get from, and the people who get your book from your book? Because we've tied it into so much that's happening in the news at the moment. And, you know, we have 
not just this intelligence world of a hundred billion dollars of people in <laughs> in this whatever it is make work world and then on top of that you've got so much of our lives through social media etc being controlled by big tech whose business mm -hmm. model is surveillance capitalism just to go back to your previous question for a moment i think part of what's happening here is a kind of american pragmatism because there's nothing that you and I can do about the deep state. But once we start adding this kind of fantastical specificity of, okay, Trump needs our support, he's going to arrest all the pedophiles, et cetera, and I have to follow these clues, suddenly there's something we can do. You know, QAnon in its own way is a very positive movement. It's a movement, it's, it's about making the world better. In terms of what to take, for, I'd like people to take from the book, um, it's more that, you know, the news washes over us constantly and certainly has an accelerating pace in the past 10 years. Um, the book is an attempt to kind of restore the world to its actual strangeness, to take a breath and think about the fact that data is physical, that, you know, though, though it is invisible, the fact that we leave receipts and pieces of ourselves all over that can be reassembled elsewhere. I mean, these are physical states, right? These are electrons. And to kind of give us a sense of the reality that we're living inside, something that we might not have taken the time to do in these past few crazy years. But it's almost like people know more about you and they monetize you than you know about yourself. We don't get a piece of the pie by the sound of it all. I think that's true. And I don't mean to suggest that there was ever a time when we had stable identities in the private, right? I mean, part of it is that our identities are changing constantly. Um, and we don't necessarily want to be held to some version of ourselves that we've released into the ether. And that can be used against us later. But yeah, I mean, I do think, I do think we've given other people a lot of power over how we are portrayed. Well, fascinating book, Carrie, and I thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I'll be speaking with Carrie Howley, who's a feature writer at New York Magazine and the author of Throne, a New York Times editor's choice and a pick of the best of the year list in Time, Salon, Slate, and many other venues. Her work has appeared in the Paris Review, Granter, Best American Sports Writing, the New York Times Magazine, and Harper's. She's a Lennon Foundation Fellow, and her latest book just out is Bottoms Up and the Devil Laughs, A Journey Through the Deep State. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past
One more light goes out in America. 